Hi, and welcome to our fourth Universalist service video. My name is Ember Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society. I use she and her pronouns, and thank you so much for joining us today. What follows are some selections from our service on October 17th, 2021. In this video, you'll get to hear the reading and the reflection. And following that, we hope that you'll join us for a discussion where we go deeper into some of the themes of the service together. You're invited to check out this podcast each week it's posted on our website, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, as well as your favorite podcast streaming sites. It's available in both video and audio format. If you like what you see, we do hope that you'll give us a positive review. The likes, the comments, the sharing, the subscribing, this helps spread Fourth Universalist media further. Finally, we acknowledge that our community is located on the lands of the Munse Lenape peoples. With this acknowledgement, we seek to continue the process of working to dismantle the ongoing legacies of oppression. We invite you to join us in this work as we embrace the APUU principle. Thanks again for watching. We begin with our reading. today is excerpted from a jailbreak of the imagination, seeing prisons for what they are and demanding justice by Mariam Kaba and Kelly Hayes. It originally appeared in Truth Out in 2018 during the Trump administration. Our current historical moment demands a radical reimagining of how we address various harms. The levers of power are currently in the hands of an administration that is openly hostile to the most marginalized in our society. Black people, native people, the poor, LGBTQ people, immigrant communities, and more. While we protect ourselves from their consistent and regular blows, we must also fight for a vision of the world we want to inhabit. Our vision insists on the abolition of the prison industrial complex as a critical pillar of the creation of a new society. As prison abolitionists, grassroots organizers, and practitioners of transformative justice, our vision is one of clear-eyed awareness of, and discussion of the horrors of the prison system and the action that awareness demands. As a society, we have long turned away from any social concern that overwhelms us. Whether it's war, climate change, or the prison industrial complex, Americans have been conditioned to simply look away from profound harms. Years of this practice have now left us with endless wars, dying oceans, and millions of people in bondage and oppressively policed. It is a time for a thorough, unflinching examination of what our society has wrought and what we have become. It is time to envision and create alternatives to the hellish conditions our society has brought into being. Our vision is a state of unrestrained imagination 
When dealing with oppressive systems, cynicism is a begrudging allegiance extracted from people whose minds could otherwise be open to new, could otherwise open new doors, make new demands, and conjure visions of what a better world would be like. Questions like, what about the really dangerous people, are not questions a prison abolitionist must answer in order to insist the prison industrial complex must be undone. There are questions we must collectively answer, even as we trouble the very notion of dangerousness. The inability to offer a neatly packaged and easily digestible solution does not preclude offering critique or analysis of the ills of our current system. We live in a society that has been locked into a false sense of inevitability. It's time to look hard at how this system came to be, who profits, how it functions, and why. And it's time to imagine what it would look like to see justice done without relying on punishment and the barbarity of carceral systems. As writer and educator Erica Miners suggests, liberation under oppression is unthinkable by design. It's time for a jailbreak of the imagination in order to make the impossible possible. I saw something on Twitter the other day from a teacher that paraphrased said essentially this. I have been in education for 20 years and have come to the conclusion that there are no bad kids. There are only kids struggling with their home life and their biology. I was struck by this as a former educator and as someone who used to work with special education students. These were the kind of kids that were labeled as having emotional and behavioral disorders who were too volatile and disruptive to be in the regular classes. And during my time with them, I witnessed countless breakdowns and tantrums, was stabbed a few times with pencils hard enough that I had scars for a few years afterwards, and had my life regularly threatened with the string of profanities. These were first, second, and third graders. But these were also kids who tried really hard. We called them our kids because they felt like that sometimes. Many struggled with a variety of chemical imbalances that they were born with and prevented them from controlling their emotions. Others came from obviously abusive homes. These were the kids who had been called bad most of their life, sometimes by their parents, sometimes by other teachers, often by other kids. We would hear it as we passed them in the halls and played with them in recess. These were the kind of kids we had to protect from self-harm, who after getting frustrated by a math problem would start hitting their head against the wall, screaming, I'm so stupid. These were also the kids who would jump out of their seat and pull their friend away from that wall telling them it is okay and no you aren't these were the kids who cried when i said i was leaving for another job 
whose clinging hugs I had to pry off on my very last day. When I think about our criminal justice system, or injustice system as some activists like to say, I can't help but see a parallel between my former students and how the world sees the incarcerated. We label people who are different, who struggle with the regular system as bad. We remove them from society and think ourselves safe. We arrest, sentence, and imprison them and call it their just rewards. We should not be surprised that prisons are full of people like my students just grown up. But here are a few things we know actually about those who are incarcerated. We know that roughly 50% suffer from mental illness. We know about 65% suffer from some form of addiction. We know that between 30 and 60% of those entering prison have already experienced some life-changing trauma or abuse. That's 10 times the percent of non-incarcerated people. Just sit with those numbers for a moment. Think about how a vast majority of those people who are in prison and are incarcerated suffer from either addiction, mental illness, and trauma. Think about how suffering from one of those things does not make you a bad person or deserving of suffering. Think about how much having a life like that would lead you to suffer. Think about how so many of us have been trained from birth to see folks in jail as bad or immoral about how the suffering we inflict on them is just and deserved. Think about how by locking them up, we get to avoid helping them, healing them, addressing underlying problems, and get to feel virtuous in comparison. Now I hear, as I have been told by the doubters and the cynics, things like, don't be naive. What about violent criminals? They are cruel and dangerous. They are a threat. What about psychopaths? Don't they deserve to be locked up? Why do we waste our breath on their suffering when there's so much other suffering in this world from people who didn't break the law? Now, I know that people can be cruel. I know that there are people who delight in hurting people and that there are so many lives that have been ruined from that. I have seen that cruelty firsthand. I've seen it from my special needs kids being cruel. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it even in congregations. But let's be clear that this question about what about the dangerous people, that's a logical fallacy. It's something that people online like to call whataboutism. It falsely implies that because there are outliers, the larger point is wrong. It ignores what we know that inflicting suffering on people experiencing addiction, trauma, and mental illness is clearly unjustifiable. 
Because it's not about some corrupt sinner that they have, some rotten heart within the people in prison. It is about suffering that they themselves have experienced. It is deliberately misleading to cast incarcerated people as uniformly dangerous when half are convicted of nonviolent crimes. This whataboutism forgets that just because someone is convicted of a violent crime doesn't mean that they committed it, doesn't mean that they will do it again, doesn't mean that they are no longer human and beyond redemption. It doesn't mean that we should be troubled that a few people might avoid state-inflicted punishment just for a more humane system. That should not be our worry. That's not real injustice. The real injustices in our world and our society are much more easy to identify. The injustice of 25% of people experiencing physical abuse in prison a lot of people. The injustice of how the recidivism rate is roughly 50%, and how you can't divorce our society's tolerance for that from the for-profit prison industry that makes millions in collecting and retaining bodies in cells. Or the injustice of the obvious hypocrisy of the system that you can go to prison or be killed for selling bum cigarettes, but you can face no consequence for disenfranchising millions of people across racial lines, annoyingly wrecking our economy and destroying millions of people's retirement savings. We see the injustice in the truth that if a penalty for breaking the law is a financial fine, that law really only exists for the poor and the middle class. Because if you're rich, who cares about a little money? And we see it in how black and brown teenagers are by far more likely to both be perceived and also sentenced as if they are hardened adult criminals, even though they are children. This list of real injustices can go on. Real injustices that are not simply that people who are bad get off a little bit easier. I honestly don't care if someone who is actually truly bad, whatever that means, avoids punishment, avoids suffering that we inflict upon them. What I want is for people to stop hurting people. I want people who have hurt people to make amends and heal the harm they caused in whatever way they can. And we don't need to hurt people to do that. We have been taught from the earliest age that punishment for wrongdoing is natural and just. But let's just reflect on that for a moment. Why does it matter whether someone suffers or is punished? Why do we want to add more pain into this world? I want you to challenge your assumptions about this idea that the guilty must suffer. How do we, as people who want more love in this world and more hope in this more world, justify intentionally inflicting pain on other people? 
especially when we know that that pain doesn't prevent more suffering, especially when we know that most of those people who are suffering because of our deliberate choices are suffering in some way themselves, laying trauma onto trauma that does not heal. I won't judge those who value punishment if they themselves are the ones who have been harmed in some terrible way or someone that they love has been harmed in some terrible way. It's not my place to judge their journey and their experience. But for the rest of us, this is a real moral challenge. Viciousness does no good to anyone. Not the people being punished, not us, not society. It is spiteful rather than loving. Cruelty received does not justify cruelty given in return. Our best selves should never want to see another hurt. It is a very slippery slope. Who gets to decide who is worthy of our wrath? If we claim to be universalists here in this place, that means that we love universally. Universalists don't celebrate vengeance. They don't support institutions that cultivate it. Universalists believe that no one is permanently separated from God or from that part of themselves grounded in love and in the potential for wholeness. Universalists believe that the spark of goodness, that potential, no matter how wounded they might be, that spark is in everyone. And all of our job, individually, but also the society we create, is to help everyone realize it. Tap into that spark, let it grow. It's no coincidence that so many of the early prison reformers, people like Dorothea Dix, were Unitarians or Universalists. They called attention to the very worst abuses in our country and demanded that even though you might not think those in prison deserve your attention and care, they do. Our faith calls us to not see criminals and the people imprisoned, but human beings who are suffering. It requires us to demand that the person suffering from addiction needs addiction support, not to be locked up. The person abused as a child needs healing and treatment and kindness, not cold and harsh isolation. That the person with mental illness needs consistent and compassionate therapy, medication, and expertise. To honor our values and what universalism really means, we need this radical restructuring of our justice system. In the same way that we speak of defunding the police to adequately fund prevention and nonviolent alternatives, we need to consider what our prison system needs, that it may be too destructive to fix, too focused on punishment to reform. What would it look like if we had alternative institutions that were well-funded, expertly staffed, that actually treated all those people struggling with addiction, mental illness, and trauma? Who would we need to imprison? then? Who would we need to lock up and ignore? What would it look like to have a social service 
safety net that guarantees that no one has to worry about where they'll turn, how they can find hope, whether someone's there to walk with them, to go with them through their healing. If we can have that kind of system, that's a world that actually cares about people, that believes in redemption and forgiveness and healing. And it's not that convenient, safe kind that says, you can get all that just by believing something and ignores that you can't just believe your way out of years of trauma and addiction and mental illness. You need a society that's there to give you a, a hand. Some would call this radical restructuring prison abolition to imagine a world that does not need incarceration anymore. We can use that word, but to me, it's more just common sense paired with compassion. In my last few weeks, when I was working with those special needs kids, I remember vividly asking my boss what she thought would happen to those kids as adults. It is likely, likely, she said while sighing, that most of them will end up in prison. Once they graduate, they will lose all the support that we can give. That felt so bleak. Is what we do pointless then? Is there no hope? I asked. I wouldn't teach if there wasn't hope, she said. And there still are kids, even if they are in prison. Since that day, when I think about the incarcerated, I think about my kids. I think about the kid who tried to hurt himself because he was in his mind, too stupid. I think about his friend who pulled him away from his wall, tried to remind him that he wasn't. I think about those kids who clung to me as I left, just wanting someone to love them and care for them. I know that they might be in prison right now as we speak. That was a long time ago and they have grown up. If they are in some jail cell somewhere, my heart breaks for them, but I love them just the same. They're still my kids, those kids. I hope that they are instead living happy lives, free from those demons that they faced as children. But no matter where they are, who they became, their lives, they are no less beautiful no yes let worthy of love and compassion to any of us who are here right now free to come and go as we please i pray that all of us remember them and people like them and we open our hearts and remember who they really are open yourself to the possibility that their lives matter that those with addiction matter, those with mental illness matter, those with trauma matter, no matter what they've done. If we do that, 
we can live in a different kind of world where we all will be transformed, not by punishment or vengeance or imprisonment, by compassion and healing and what universalism really is about. May it be so, and amen. Reverend Schuyler, so good to sit down with you once again. Great to be here, Amber. Thank you. For anybody that may be tuning in for the first time, do you just want to give a quick description of who you are, your pronouns and such? Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Reverend Schuyler Vogel. I serve as the senior minister here at the Fourth Universalist Society. I use he, him pronouns and uh, delighted to be here to talk about this service that spoke about punishment, the mass incarceration system, um, and how we can do better. Yes, it was um, a powerful service theme, and I appreciate us tackling such a, a tough topic and one that's really relevant to a lot of uh, cultural and social discussions right now. What do we do with punishment? How do we, how do we move towards a more just society? All these discussions of defund the police and prison abolition, there's so many things going around. And it's, it's really great that we can engage, um, engage these topics. Um, so in our service, we, we heard from the Fortune Society. So I imagine that perhaps shaped a little bit of the inspiration for um, the, the service theme. I, I'm curious about the inspiration of the service. Sure. Um, yeah, there, are, there were two things that led to the service uh, and the theme. And um, although those folks who are watching this didn't get to see the Fortune Society speaker uh, uh, share, uh, they were a big part of why we did this service. Our racial justice team has been exploring a partnership with them very explicitly. So we're gonna have programming for them uh, throughout the fall. I think there are, there's a, sort of a get to know you kind of event coming up in a few weeks. And then there's a production of one of their, of a, of a theater performance that they, um, that they offer that we'll also be hosting, um, which is great and exciting. And those are things that you should look, look for in our, in our media to, to definitely attend. Um, so the racial justice team approached me and said, we'd love to do a service that explores these themes um, that draws attention, sheds light on the work that Fortune Society is doing, but, but more generally just about the, the, the need for that kind of work um, and, uh, uh, and, and what it's all about. And so you know, the, what the Fortune Society does is they do, they do a lot of things, but a big part of their work is to uh, support the formerly incarcerated uh, as, they, as they leave prison and uh, ensure that that they are able to build a life that is that is good and free and happy. Um, um, often it involves pairing uh, formerly incarcerated folks with um, new workplaces um, where they can find a, a steady source of income, a stabilizing force, um, and uh, and build their life. So uh, Fourth Universalist has done that as well. Um, we have been a, a, a source of employment for, for formerly incarcerated people. Uh, it's something that we don't talk about too much, but we're really proud of it um, because we, you know, we see it as us putting our values uh, into into action. Um, uh, so when the, when the racial justice team approached me about the service, I had actually just read another read a book um, over the summer as part of my study leave um, called "We Do This Till We Free Us" by Mariambe uh, Kaba, who is um, an activist writer who uh, whose book was quite powerful and it's a book about this is a series of conversations and essays uh, about prison abolition and also about problematizing this question of what is punishment and why 
why we feel as, as society and, and, and as individuals that punishment is, is just. And I think a lot of it is just, we have this assumption baked in that bad people deserve to suffer. And so what I try to do in my, in my reflection is to both suggest that our notion of what is bad people is inherently flawed uh, and that that whole concept, uh, particularly when, we, when you think about those people who are in prison, uh, is simply, it's simply wrong. I mean, most, like I talk about in the service, most people in prison either are struggling with addiction, historical trauma, um, or mental illness of some sort. And so to see these folks as bad rather than people who are struggling uh, with these things that, uh, that we as a society can actually do something about, right, uh, and address uh, is, is really immoral um, that, that we just sort of say, well, these are all problems you have, but like, you know, we don't really want to deal with them. It's inconvenient. So like, we'll just, we'll just stick you, stick you in prison, say you're bad and that you deserve it, um, which is not a, a just or, or you know, faithful, uh, if you're a Unitarian Universalist, right, to our, our vision of people being uh, full of inherent worth and dignity and loving and lovable, uh, you know, so, um, so I had read that book. And, uh, and so I thought that'd be a perfect, a perfect kind of springboard for our conversation about uh, prisons and the work of the Fortune Society um, to open up us deeper into these questions of, of who matter and, and what can we do differently as a society. And it's it's such a good book that it's I also uh, purchased it with my <laughs> professional expenses over the summer. I have not gotten to it yet, but I only hear good things. And we did this completely independent of each other. We both said, "Hey, this is a book that we should be engaging with." So I, hit I would book. also hit book of the summer. Yes, I would recommend it to folks as well. Um, I, I hear really good things from everybody that's engaged it. So, I mean, I think it's really important to think about. And I suppose, you know, tying into you know the way you're talking about how we. Um, you know, look to punish bad people, that bad people have to suffer. You know, I think that that comes from a little bit of our uh, religious history of the United States, that that it was viewed as that you had to do penance for the sin, you had to have this this educated or taken out of you to, to pay time for what you did, instead of looking at, you know, deeper, looking at the, looking at the inherent worth. Um, and I, I think it's a radical thing to, to begin to Think differently about these things. So I'm curious, what does a world that that focuses on redemption look like to you? I think it's a world that does two things. One, on sort of an emotional, psychological, spiritual level, um, it's one that that sees what I think traditionally theology would call sin, right, as as a product of of more of one's environment and one's innate depravity. Um, you know, I do think there are people who are born without a moral compass um, and, or at least with some sort of stunted version of that. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily their fault either, despite if someone does something that's bad, right? Or hurtful. Um, I think it's, I think it's, a way of looking at people in the world as products of their environment and as, as people who, um, who have often been given really difficult hands to deal with. Um, it's about not, not blaming people for being addicts. It's about not blaming people for their mental illness. Um, it's um, not blaming people for having untreated trauma in their life. I mean, so many people who, who go on to traumatize other people 
themselves were traumatized. And, and so we can say that they are victimizers and, and they are, uh, but they're also victims themselves. And so if we start building a society that understands that so much of the harm that has is being done to people is based on harm that they themselves have experienced, we can start trying to reverse that and limit it rather than trying to pretend like it's not there and hide it behind prison bars. Um, because that's what we're doing now. We're saying it's not the trauma, it's not the addiction, not the mental illness, right? It's so you're bad and we can't fix bad. Bad's just bad. You're corrupt. You're sinful. Like you said, the religiously, right? This sense of, you know, we're all sinful. So we're going to stick you away. And that is, that is maybe the easier way to do it because it's, we can then feel good about ourselves. We can feel safe, right? We can feel like we're not like them. Um, but that's not the way to limit less harm. Um, and it's not the way that, you know, you truly believe in redemption. You know, the Christian idea of redemption is supposed to be everyone can be saved, right? Uh, um, and so often we give people such a narrow path to that way. Um, we assume that salvation comes only through a conversion to very specific theological understanding rather than a lot of a lot of work and a lot of treatment and investments, you know, in infrastructure, right? So the other side, not just a psych mentality change, it's also investment, right? So all the money we're putting into prisons, right? Um, to just house these people and sit there uh, could easily go into treatment centers for addiction and mental illness, uh, you know, facilities and, and intensive care. Uh, and frankly, you know, schools because and schools and social workers and people who can intervene in situations where a child is getting hurt. Um, and uh, and classes for parents and how to do that. And there's so much you can invest and we spend so much money on prisons um, and then part because they're often privatized. And so there's a profit to be made. Uh, and so the world that I would like to see us in is that we we start redirecting that money to some place that actually leads to healing and wholeness for people who have been hurt and are hurting um, to try to prevent that harm going forward. Um, you know, uh, I think a, another part about redemption is also trying to fix what you did, you know, and there's some accountability there too. It's not like you just say you hurt someone. So like, we're just trying to work on you. It's also about recognizing the harm you caused and working to, to fix it in whatever way to make amends. Um, and, uh, and so this isn't, it's not a, it's not a theology of, so you hurt someone, no big deal just work on yourself until you don't do it again it's also a sense of like this stuff matters right and like how do you how do you do some atonement for that not in a way that says you're worthless but that takes seriously the harm that you cause and then i think that acknowledgement of the harm you cause is what allows people to take it seriously enough that they work to not do it again um and it's not about shame right it's not about grinding people in the, into the dirt because that doesn't that doesn't inspire change right that just inspires more loathing, uh, self-loathing, um, and more self-harm and more destructive behavior. So, so I want to get rid of all that stuff and replace it with hope for people and, and actual structural and systemic support. So no one feels like they're ever really alone. Um, and too often we find that to be the case. Well, and so thinking intersectionally, there was, there was something you said a little bit, uh, earlier, earlier on, um, that, and that and all that about how we like to you know move things out of you that we put them in prison to get them out of you and i couldn't help but connect that to thinking about like gentrification uh that you know uh the the city that i lived in in michigan grand rapids uh had a ton of homelessness in the downtown 
and then suddenly they solved the homelessness, but mostly it was pushing it either into another area of town or it was sending most of them to prison. And it's like, these things are interconnected that we, we like to move the, the problematic things out of our view and then not think about it. But it's very important for us to realize that if we're this country um, that talks all about freedom, but yet has the largest uh, and largest percentage of prison population in the entire world, um, then that perhaps says something about us as a society and what we need to change and what we need to challenge. Um, yeah, it's almost like this country is free for certain people and not others. Um, um, you know, the whole question of who goes to prison, right? I talk about this a little bit in the sermon very briefly about why some crimes lead people to prison and some don't, uh, and who get to avoid you know, who gets more, who's more likely to get accused of certain crimes versus others. And it's no surprise that people who are black and brown get accused of the ones that send you to prison. And those that are white or, you know, wealthy or connected get crimes that don't, or they get fines that they can easily pay for, um, for things that doesn't matter if they get fined. Um, you know, they have enough. Fines that send you to prison. Yeah. 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 Um, so, there are lots of problems that we need to fix in here. And I think that freedom question is really key. Um, and there's a whole, you know, the whole could be a whole other sermon or, or educational series about the history of how mass, the mass incarceration state got created and how it ties in, you know, with sort of this new Jim, Jim Crow idea of, of how do we control black and brown bodies in this country after the civil rights movement? Um, you know, how do we, how do we use to, words like crime and uh, to, you know, allow for, for race baiting and other things that, um, you know, remove the power of, of black and brown communities and individuals. So there's lots of problematic stuff there too that I couldn't even get to touch in. The hard challenge with this sermon was, was how, to, how to say something meaningful without not just like throwing the whole book at the whole thing, because you could, you could do so much and you can go in so many directions. I mean, I barely talk about abolition in the sermon and, and that could be a whole other service, right? Um, but I, the way that I perceive, understood this service was sort of laying the groundwork for the larger conversation around why did this stuff matter and why is our prison system fundamentally unjust? Well, you know, uh, I'm adding a little checkbox in my head for as the as the DRE for future course. Um, so stay tuned. We're gonna we'll, we'll find a way to have this one. If not this year, then next year. Um, so I think that sounds like a a great uh, potential uh, learning experience for for all of us. So. Reverend Schuyler, thank you for talking with me. Thank you for this powerful message today. Uh, and yeah, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Amber. Thank you all for listening. I look forward to uh, hopefully seeing you at one of the Fortune Society events. And uh, feel free to reach out if you have questions about any of this.